Hi, welcome to another episode of Spud Chat. My name is Ryan Barrett with uh, Prince Edward Island Potato Board. Today we're talking with Dr. Laura Van Erd of uh, the Ridgetown campus of the University of Guelph in Ontario. Uh, Laura is a researcher uh, and professor uh, whose research focus in the last number of years has largely dealt with cover crops, and she's been doing a lot of fantastic work on cover crops, both their short, medium, and long-term effects in rotation uh, and in a, in a variety of different rotations, so corn and soybean rotations, but also in vegetable rotations, uh, which has a direct uh, impact and, and relation to what we're doing in potatoes. So very interested to talk to uh, Laura and hear about some of the really interesting work that uh, her and her team have been doing. I know we've been trying to get Laura to um, speak at a conference uh, here at PEI a couple different times and just hasn't quite worked out yet. Hopefully uh, in the near future, we'll be able to make that work. So uh, without further ado, we'll uh, listen to my conversation with Dr. Laura Bannard. Today on Spud Chat, uh, I'm joined by Dr. Laura Van Erd from uh, the University of Guelph and the Ridgetown campus uh, up in Ridgetown, Ontario. Uh, Welcome to Spud Chat today, Laura. Thanks, Ryan, and thanks for the invitation. It's it's really good to talk to you. Uh, We've crossed paths at meetings, um, and I'm looking forward to coming down to PEI. As soon as we get a chance. Yeah, we, uh, we've we been uh, hoping to have you here for conferences and some things uh, in the past and it hasn't worked out yet and especially due to COVID the last year or so. So hopefully we can uh, we can rectify that before too long. Um, mm, well. One of the main reasons that we we I wanted to talk to you today is uh, is on the topic of cover crops. You've been um, at the forefront of a lot of cover crop research here in the last number of years, as well as, uh, you know, quite visible in terms of uh, cover crop extension with growers in Ontario and, and across Canada. So I wanted to, uh, to chat with you a little bit today about cover cropping, because of course, that's getting to be an increasingly um, important aspect of potato farming here at PEI all the time as well. Um, Can you maybe just sort of set the stage a little bit for us and tell us a little bit about um, your cover crop research and maybe how how that started and how you got started, you know, investigating cover crops and uh, sort of how that's uh, developed to today? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, You know, what researcher doesn't enjoy talking about the research? Um, So, My work on cover crops started in 2004. Uh, We were doing nitrogen fertility trials, trying to get recommendations for some vegetable crops. And so with those early harvested crops, it made sense to put in a a cover crop, uh, long growing season after harvest. Um, And at that time, you know, the research questions were, how much nitrogen can we keep in the field and minimize losses? Um, and, and to some extent, that question still remains. Um, so after having those trials, in 2007, I established a long-term cover crop experiment where we have side-by-side comparisons of different cover crops 
that was established in 2007 and is ongoing. So we have, we're accumulating quite the data set. Um, it's in a processing veg and grain system. So with the processing veg industry, um, you know, while some peas are harvested really early, like in July, and then we might have something like squash or tomatoes that are harvested in, you know, September, early to mid-September. So we've got a wide window to plant to cover crop. And because um, I'm located at Richtown, which is about an hour from Detroit, we are very south. And so we've got a long growing season. We can get uh, you know, one, two, three months of growth, depending on on when we harvest. Um, so that the long term trial, I you know, that's a lot of my research interest now. But we've done work in trying to integrate cover crops into the system. So we have seed corn in our area. Uh, with seed corn, you can open up the canopy and drop in seed, it'll germinate. And by the time you take off the seed corn, you've got a nice cover. Um, working right now on bio strips and um, kind of strip till versus no-till, uh, high, high biodiversity, right? Do we need that high, high mixture or one, two, four, eight, 12 species, looking at that. Well, lots of lots of interesting questions and lots of stuff that I know they're all <laughs> things that I'm hearing down here in PEI as well. So mm -hmm. uh, definitely very applicable. Um, so I've read some of the um, papers and some of the reports on on your rotation trials over the last number of years include and some of the presentations you've done. Uh, mm -hmm. recently. And we know with, with cover crops, you know, it's a given, I guess, that cover crops are going to be very valuable for protecting against erosion. Um, that may be less of a concern in the banana belt where you guys are and on a lot of flat land, but I suppose there's always wind erosion and, and some of mm -hmm. those issues as well. But here mm -hmm. in PEI, particularly where we have a lot of, you know, slopey land and very um, sandy loam, you know, land that, that's prone to erosion, that's a that's a big win in and of itself in terms of keeping um, the soil you know where in the field where it should be. In terms of you know maybe long term, in terms of the effect on on say crop yields, or also the effects on say improving soil health and soil organic matter. What what are the trends that you've been seeing in your research? Yeah, um, so good point about the erosion. Um, and and I am on flat ground. Uh, I the trial though our long term trial is on uh, sandy loam soil, so very representative of of the area here, um, and applicable to to your your region. Like this is beautiful potato ground. Right. Um, so what have we seen? Well. Um, I would say that the early day res results are different than these medium to long-term results. So if we think early on, we 
we can show and we showed that there's there's more nitrogen in the system. We've pre- prevented nitrogen losses and we can account for more nitrogen to our following crop. However, after growing cover crops six times in eight years, we were able to to increase soil organic matter. So we went from no cover crop, which was 3.4% organic matter, up to 3.9. So that's wow. that's a you know if you think about it that's a pretty huge oh, increase five yeah. percent yeah. but yeah, well point five right yeah. half a percent in a lot of fields in PEI would make a pretty big difference and there'd be a lot of guys would be pretty excited about doing that. Absolutely and you know um this is like we saw it with um, my postdoctoral fellow, her work in 2016. And then in 2019, the Soil Health Institute sampled our same trials and they found the same result. Um, so we've got two independent um, accounts that are showing the same result. So yeah, that half a percent means a lot. And um, we didn't see it earlier, but now we're seeing the corn crop respond to that available nitrogen, to the carbon cycling. Um, and so last year and this year, we're seeing more nitrogen provided to the corn crop where we've had long-term cover crops, where we have increases in organic matter. When there's no cover crop, that corn, you can you can pick it out like a light bulb. Uh, it's The corn isn't as green, uh, shorter. Right now in September, like it's firing up the, the leaves, like the plants have shut down quicker, cobs are smaller. Um, yields are lower with without the cover crops and and I'm attributing it to that that increase in organic matter right yeah there's just that little bit extra resiliency that little bit extra you know um, nitrate or nutrient you know reservoir water source you know um, just provides a little bit more buffer for for that, uh, for that biological system. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and now I should qualify that we were growing grain corn with only starter fertilizer. So 30 pounds up front, um, you know, and, and so you could say, yeah, Laura. Okay. However, we did grow 250 bushel corn with the long-term cover crops. Wow. So things are not so bad. Yeah. yeah. You're, um, not, you're not, they're not starving. No, no, no. Um, and, you know, like having said that on average, we grew 178 with, um, with the no cover crop. So we are on some really nice ground. Like that sandy loam is was good to start with. So we got we saw a 59 bushel increase in yield with that long-term cover cropping. 
Wow. It's, uh, it is interesting to see. I know um, I've seen presentations in the past on cover cropping in, say, corn and soybean and grain systems. And mm-hmm. often they'll talk about, you know, the first few years, you know, we don't, we don't see a big impact on yield, yep. but, but we do start seeing an impact as, you know, as you say, as you go longer. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's per- percentages and, and, you know, they may not always be the, the amount of difference that you've seen, but even if you're seeing some improvement, you know, that plus, you know, the, the improving the resiliency of the soil and preventing soil erosion, it's all has value where yep. I've seen, I see potentially even more room for, um, improvement or more room for adoption in a potato rotation because, because of the high value of the crop. So mm-hmm. we see that, you know, even a two or 3% yield boost um, that could be coming from a, a cover crop in the short term is more than enough to pay for the cover crop. And, and, and then you're and you're, you are then making, you know, making money on that. So um, yeah. that's where so- what's sort of driving some of the interest in the cover crop research and the cover crop adoption here in PEI. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I should mention that we've had tomatoes in our rotation like every four or five years. And those tomatoes are really responsive to the cover crops. Yeah. Just like you said, a, a couple more tons and more than pays for the seed. And, and last year in our tomato crop, well, two years ago, 19, we we saw that the tomatoes had less defoliation um, and less anthracnose with the long-term cover crops than in the no cover crop. Right. Um, And it was, it was, you know, I've got photos and, and you could have stood at the edge of that trial and kind of picked out the, the ones where the tomato, um, vines had gone down versus the ones where the cover crops had been used like we're still going I guess way to put it and uh tomatoes are you know uh they're related to potatoes of course and and um you know we see that in potatoes as well where um where there maybe are covers or or that may be helping to decrease um, verticillium, um, mm. and, and early dying disease in, in potato rotation. So mm-hmm. that can also not just have a, you know, a soil health benefit, but also maybe a disease suppressive, uh, benefit mm-hmm. as well, depending on the, the type of cover that's used. Yeah. In this, in this case, it was radish. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, definitely we saw differences in defoliation, um, so I'm not ready to say that it's absolutely disease suppressive, but there was definitely something going on. And I collaborated with the plant pathologists and they took measurements and there was a decrease in anthracnose on the fruit. So it, it, there, you know, is it an absolute no, because the following year we didn't you know, you don't have the disease pressure in there yeah. and you don't see the differences. Exactly. Is it, you know, helpful? Yeah. Yeah. And that gets me, I guess, to my next question. So in these types of cover crop trials, like 
we, we bandy around the term cover crops, but that can be a fairly wide range of, of covers, yeah. especially in a system like yours, where you've got a little longer window than we have here in PEI. What, mm-hmm. what are the types of covers that you've been including in those trials? And is there covers that, are there cover crop species that really stand out or, uh, or mixes that really stand out? Or is, does it sort of depend on what they're, you know, what's coming after that cover? Like, do you have to, have you found that there's a, you know, following crop, you know, cover crop interaction of some kind? Does the cover crop matter? Um, Maybe, but I think the first one is, do you have a cover crop versus no cover crop? We have done trials. We had a different long-term trial where we grew uh, snap beans, uh, side by side, like six rows of snaps versus six rows of sweet corn. Eh, did it make a difference which cover crop you grew? Not really. The only thing I could say is I wouldn't use radish before snaps uh, because they were never better. They they weren't statistically lower, the snaps, when you grew radish beforehand but it was never like higher. Right. Um, but all the other ones, yeah, doesn't matter. Some years, one's better. Other years, the other one's better. In the end, pick what works in your system. Pick what works with your goals. Pick what works for disease suppression, how quickly you need it up and growing. Um, if, uh, you know, our our work kind of points towards radish and rye before tomatoes. Um, So I I would recommend that. However, in this long-term experiment, we don't have, like, it wasn't designed to test all of the cover crops. Right. Um, We have oats, we have uh, cereal fall rye, we have radish and then we have radish and rye. Um, and, and think about it, you know, in 2007, having a mix was, wow, look at how innovative. Yeah. <laughs> so things really have come a long way. Yeah, they sure have. Um, here, it tends to be, there tends to be kind of two groupings uh, depending mm. on, on what's being done. So um, if it's going in after potatoes, so it's, mm-hmm. it's trying, you know, Mostly the potatoes are getting dug late September to, you know, into sometimes even into late October. Um, So in those cases, it's a lot of uh, uh, fall rye and winter wheat that's going in after potatoes, especially the, you know, winter wheat maybe for the earlier stuff and fall rye for the later stuff. Um, And then there is a bit of, you know, barley and oats that's going on just as a bit of a a cheap cover as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we're seeing more of an interest in, uh, covers going on in the the year before potatoes, which is usually um, following like a forage crop. Um, okay. So a lot of times that forage crop, say it's alfalfa or something, and it's getting um, killed and worked in late August, early September, and then a cover put on uh, to to protect that soil over the over the you know over the winter, um, but okay. also leave that soil pretty easily to get work and get you know set up for potatoes in the spring so in that case we've got people that are using brassicas or you know so the radishes or 
um, mustard or mm-hmm. some mixes with with grains and and even like some some winter peas and things like that. So there's a little bit more um, variety uh, in because you've got a little longer establishment window. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what it comes down to. Um, right, you need to get that forage or alfalfa terminated. Yeah, I, I understand you don't want to be dealing with that in the spring. Seems like a good good approach. And and it's also you know oftentimes that forage crop you know if you're terminating alfalfa or clover or something um, you know there's a lot of potential mm-hmm. nitrogen to get leached as well so that cover yep. also helps to you know scavenge some of that nitrogen and keep it from all just going away in our big wet uh, falls we have down here. Yeah, absolutely, and and those covers they just take it up, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been amazed at how well, um, you know, in some of our trials, how well rye and and even just regular old spring barley versus a no cover crop, how much lower soil nitrate there is in the in those cover crop plots compared to the checks. Um, yeah, so they are they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And seventy percent is the number we get here in in uh, southwestern Ontario. Wow, um, and also at Purdue. Like when they have lysimeters and and cover crops, decent cover crop growth, it is 70% reduction in nitrogen losses. Right. And is that both like nitrate, but also like uh, looking at, say, nitrous oxides as well? Uh, so that number was just leaching losses. Uh-huh. Um, the, the work, so my um, colleague... Dr. Claudia Wagner-Riddle, she's looked at nitrous oxide. Uh, the key is balancing your um, your fertilizer to what your cover crop is going to give you. Um, so, you know, if you have red clover as the cover crop before your, let's say, potatoes, and in our case, it was corn, you, you want to make sure to to back down that nitrogen rate because you're getting the nitrogen from the cover crop. Right. If you don't, then there's possibility that, well, and what they've seen is you can have greater nitrous oxide emissions. And it is, you know, so that it's really that nitrous oxide is is kind of complicated, right? So you got to balance you know, what the crop needs and minimizing having extra nitrogen around. Yeah. And I know here, like, I know I've talked with lots of growers over the years that, you know, normally a PEI potato rotation usually has a year of forage ahead of potatoes, yep. right? That's okay. that's pretty standard. Um, but a lot of times that would then get, you know, it would get roundup in the summer and then get worked or it might get plowed mm-hmm. in October. Um, and plowed green, mm-hmm. a lot of the value of that crop may actually get leached away in the fall. And then a lot of the additive value of the nitrogen contribution to the next year might not be there. So that's why there was a lot of growers that would, you know, they weren't crediting much for the legume uh, the next year. But if we can put a cover on after, you know, after those uh, legumes to, you know, keep that <laughs> hanging around a little bit longer and keep them leaching away, that's great for the environment, but great for the next year's crop as well. Yeah, you bet. 
And I think if you can combine that with long-term cover crops, keeping your soil, when you keep your soil, you keep your organic matter. Um, increasing in organic matter gives you the nitrogen to your to your potato crop, right? Like, yeah, it's just win win win. Um, the you know, having said that, it it's not easy to like you know it, it's, it's more time. It's yeah. another investment. Um, but I think the bottom line is is that the benefits I think are there. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, you know, we have a bunch of trials ongoing um, where, you know, um, where we're collaborating through our living labs project here. So there's, there's plot scale stuff being done at Canada, but also stuff being done on farms here where hopefully we'll be able to, you know, add some more uh, real world data to that uh, conversation as well over time. Mm-hmm. Um, another question I have for you is around um, straw. And so we, I get a lot of questions from growers about, you know, the the value of s- removing straw versus mulching straw and leaving it in the field when it comes to building soil organic matter. So in your research, have you done any work to sort of quantify the effect that say removing straw versus you know leaving straw on the field has on soil organic matter over time and i guess my supplementary question would be you know if you're if the if the choice was leaving the straw on the field or planting or removing it and planting a cover what would your choice be <laughs> okay good questions um so let me start with my long term trial so we've only removed straw Draw a couple of times, and the the one time removal, yeah, no problem, right? Um, I think the thing to think about is when you're m- removing straw, you're removing carbon, and and don't you want that carbon in your in your field? Now, in in our region, there's opportunities to trade carbon for manure or carbon for compost, right? Your straw, right? give you the straw. Can you send me some manure this way or some compost this way? Like that I think is, well, then you're, you're, you're removing it, but putting it back. Right. Right. You're removing straw, but it's coming back with manure on it. (laughs) It is. It is. It's coming back to you. Um, Like from my trial, we, don't have enough removal to make a big difference. We're not picking it up uh, for the most part. There's some differences, but not enough to to um, to do to to make a big recommendation. Having said that, though, if we if we just think about soil and our system, it's about getting carbon in the soil. And so if you can keep it spread, so then, then it becomes spreading even, right? Right. Uh, So what can you put on the back of the combine that helps with that and, and then plant a cover crop? Yeah. And we do have a, we have a decently strong uh, livestock sector here and, and and growing as well. And so there is Mm -hmm. a market for straw, but I know we've had the conversation too about, you know, there may be, 
stronger fields where taking the straw off is going to be less of a problem. And there may be weaker fields where people say, I need to leave the straw on here to try and speed up my rehabilitation work a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And so I am definitely a proponent of looking at the whole system and figuring out what works on your farm. We have done trials, though, with tomatoes where we kept the wheat straw in the field, we removed it, or we uh, left it in the field and we added 30 pounds of nitrogen to speed up decomposition. Right. And so that was an industry requested experiment. Um, you know, was it, and, and the point was to, so that you don't have a lot of residues to deal with in the spring. Right. Um, and so we did that five site years. So we had it on campus, but we also had it on grower sites. And the bottom line was we had higher yields where we kept the straw in the field. And I think it's because of that biological activity helping the crop. Right. Now, in Leamington, where they use um, they use a cereal bio strip to prevent from wind erosion mm -hmm. like that so they use a cover crop then we the effect of removing straw wasn't there so it's kind of like your buffer system having a cover crop right so at minimum you don't need to be applying fall and to get rid of of your straw and and we were seeing higher yields when you left the straw in the in the field with tomatoes well i always said i've said to a few people and i've put in a couple of my updates here that um barrett's first rule of agronomy is trade straw for manure any day of the week yeah so, um <laughs> and I, I know that's not original but i, I it's uh, i think that's always a good trade you bet yeah you bet what, especially what? if they're paying for the transport <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if they're, they're anyways close by. Yeah. What's uh what's sort of next on the on the research docket or what are the sort of projects that maybe you're working on now that are either sort of continuations or enhancements on what you're doing, uh what you've already been doing, or maybe something that's a little bit new? Yeah. So we are gonna apply a nitrogen tracer. So fertilizer that's uh, been traced, so that's N15. And uh, so we applied that to the cover crop. So now we can know how much fertilizer went into the cover crop. But more importantly, we can follow that nitrogen that was in the cover crop to the next year's corn crop. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and the really exciting part is we're comparing the long-term to the first-time cover crop use. So our plots are, are really big, and we were able to uh, plant a cover crop in the no cover crop. So that one hasn't seen cover crops in decades. So we can compare first-time cover crop to the long-term cover cropping. And that has me excited. Yeah, that's, that's um, very interesting. 
My last question, uh, Laura, and I ask this of, of everybody that uh, comes on Spud Chat, is uh, I ask them, do they have a favorite potato variety? And if they don't have a particular potato variety, particularly maybe somebody that isn't that active in potato research or, oh, or potato agronomy, is do they have a favorite way to eat potatoes? I have both. Okay. So Yukon Gold, but that's my bias towards the University of Guelph. Of course, um, yeah. And favorite way, I'd be lying if I wasn't saying duck, duck fat French fries. Oh man, those are those sound really good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The duck fat uh, is that a, or it? Um, uh, it's at a higher temperature, right? So then it, it makes it just that little bit more crispy. I. I do not know the secret. I just know it's delicious. <laughs> well, that's all that matters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Laura, pleasure. if people want to learn more about uh, your research and the things that you're doing, I know uh, Soils at Guelph has a good um, yes. website that includes a lot of your research on it. So people can yep. check that out on, uh, on social media and on the website. And uh, yeah, we look forward to having you in PEI before long. Yep, look forward to it too. All right, thanks a lot. All right, take care, Ryan. <laughs>